Well, amen. Happy Resurrection Day to all of you. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. So today's a happy day. It's a happy day for us as Christians because Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, has risen from the dead just as he said he would do. In the lead up to what we call the Passion Week of Jesus, Jesus gathered his disciples together and he announced to them just exactly what would transpire in the days ahead. And this is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, where Jesus told his disciples, and while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to them, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. What a reminder that Jesus came to this sin-tainted earth on a mission. He came to die in the place of sinners. And as believers in Jesus Christ, there were four theological realities that resulted from his death. First, there was expiation. This means that our sin was covered. Second, there was propitiation, and this means that God's wrath against our sin was removed. Third, there was reconciliation. This means our relationship with God was fully restored. And then fourth, there was redemption. And this means that the penalty that we owed for our sin was paid in full. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus You know, there's a reason why we call the Friday that Jesus died Good Friday, right? But his resurrection day is a day of celebration. It is a happy day for the Christian because Jesus defeated death and he is alive today. And according to John chapter 14, he is in heaven preparing a place for all those who have placed their faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of sin And so this past week and this week, our aim has been to concentrate our attention on his resurrection. And so last week, we examined verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we centered our attention on the truth of the resurrection. This morning, as we come together and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we want to consider verses 12 through 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and our trust in the resurrection. So I'd invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And before we look at verses 12 through 19 today, which is our text, I want to just review a little bit with you from verses 1 through 11, because if you recall, we centered our attention on three evidences of the truth of the resurrection. First, we considered the prediction of the prophets. And so when the Apostle Paul mentions this phrase in verses 3 and 4, when he says, according to the Scriptures, he's referring back to what the Old Testament prophets had foretold. In other words, everything that they had prophesied about Jesus was true. We mentioned that there are over 300 specific prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. And we look specifically at two of the most well-known prophecies about his death, which are found in Psalm chapter 22 and Isaiah chapter 53. 
So the first evidence of the truth of the resurrection was the predictions of the prophets. The second evidence that Paul shares in verses 5 through 8 were the professions of the eyewitnesses. There's a reason why Jesus appeared to so many people after he was resurrected from the dead. In the case of Jesus' resurrection, there were literally hundreds and hundreds of people who saw him alive in a resurrected body, including, by the way, Paul himself. And so eyewitness testimony is always very, very powerful, and there were literally hundreds who saw Jesus after his death. The third evidence we found in verses 9 through 11, and it is the proof of a transformed life. And Paul uses himself as an example in verses 9 through 11. And all throughout the epistles, Paul speaks of this transformed life, how God got a hold of his life through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and transformed his life. God turned him from a persecutor of the church to its greatest missionary. And this is what God does when he saves us, right? He transforms our lives. He conforms us to his image. And he gives us a new desire to walk with him and please him and obey him. Well, our mission for today is to look at verses 12 through 19. And our subject for today is our trust in the resurrection. Last week, we looked at the truth of the resurrection. This week, our trust in the resurrection. So let me read to you verses 12 through 19, and then we'll make our way through it this morning. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Well, the first presidential election that I was old enough to vote in was in 1984, so that dates me a little bit. It was the election between Ronald Reagan and Walter Mondale. You want to talk about a landslide. Ronald Reagan won 49 of 50 states. He was 3,800 votes from winning all 50 states. Unheard of in today's political environment. I've always had a lot of admiration for President Reagan. He did things that no other American president had ever done. If you ever have a chance, if you're out in California, you need to stop by the Reagan Presidential Library and Museum. It is absolutely amazing. As the leader of the free world, he had a saying, and we know it today as the Reagan Doctrine. You remember what it is? Trust, but verify, right? Trust, but verify. And that sounds reasonable to us because we practice this in real life. If I prepay a guy to come and fix the siding on my home and Kathy and I are out for the day, 
When I get back to the house, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go and I'm going to inspect the work that this guy did on my house. This is what we practice in our own lives every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year. This doctrine that we trust, we want to be trusting of people. We don't want to be those cynical kind of people that never trusts anybody, right? We want to be trusting and we want people to trust us but we practice a very similar doctrine even in the christian life we we trust but verify when we come to the scriptures we either trust that they are true or we don't we either trust the hundreds of eyewitnesses that verified that they saw the resurrected jesus with their own eyes or we don't i have studied the bible in earnest, for some four or five decades, I have visited the Holy Land and walked where Jesus walked, and I have more confidence today that the Bible is 100% true and accurate and contains all we need for life and godliness than ever before. In verses 12 through 19 that I just read, Paul gives six realities if there is no resurrection. So he turns it. Paul turns it. He says, if there is no resurrection, then all these things are true. And so it's very interesting to see it in this light. So we want to go through our text this morning, and we want to begin with the first reality, if there is no resurrection, And it is that our preaching is in vain. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. I was trying to calculate this past week how many times I've preached a sermon and how many times I've taught some sort of a study, and somehow somewhere in the thousands uh, is the number of the times that I've preached and or taught the Bible. If the resurrection is not true, then I have wasted tens of thousands of hours in study and preparation and the delivery of a lie. Paul says that if the resurrection is not true, then our preaching is in vain. It's worthless. But because the resurrection is true, we can boldly proclaim the word of God. And we are reminded by the Apostle Paul that it is imperative that we preach the whole counsel of God. What does he mean in Acts chapter 20 and verse 27 when he said, I did not shrink from proclaiming to you the whole counsel of God. Well, he, he means, and if you've been attending Grace Life for any length of time at all, you know that we don't skip over the hard stuff. We just go through a book of the Bible or a passage of Scripture and we preach it. We work hard to not read into the Bible, but to get our beliefs from the Bible. 
there are two theological words that help us to understand our mission as we attack the Bible and we look at the Bible and we want to extract its meaning. Eisegesis. Eis means in. And so these are people that read into the text of Scripture what they want it to say. But that's not how we approach Scripture. We, it, it, we approach Scripture as exegetes. So exegesis, ex means out, and so we extract out the meaning of the Bible when we pour over it. On Wednesday nights, I was teaching the inductive Bible study method. Observation, interpretation, application. The three steps in inductive Bible study. And so after we observe the text and we ask all of the pertinent questions, then we get to the point where we can interpret the text. But we must interpret it based upon a normal literal hermeneutic. In other words, we go to the Bible, we read it as it is intended to be read, and then we, we extract the meaning out of the text, and then we put it into our lives. So this is our mission as exegetes, and then we just preach the Word and we rely on the power of the Spirit of God to transform our lives. Why? Because the Bible is inspired by God, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces through the bone and the marrow, and it goes right to the heart. You see, the Bible is unlike any other book. But if the resurrection is not true, then all of our preaching is in vain. And this is Paul's main point when he writes to his dear son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 15, and then flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want to show you this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 1 says this, I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. In other words, Paul's writing to his dear son in the faith, Timothy. He says, in light of the fact that Jesus is alive and his kingdom is coming, God's word is to be preached with boldness. Not tickling ears, not giving feel-good sermons. But notice what he says in verse 2 and following. He says, we are to preach the word. Paul says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Now, what is the goal of preaching? What is the purpose in preaching? Is it to tickle ears or, or to make people feel better about themselves? To address to avoid addressing hard things like sin or personal holiness or commitment to Christ and his church? No, what does he say is the goal of preaching? He says, correct, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. In other words, we preach the word so that it can put us in our place. But some people don't want to be put in their place. Exactly. That's why Paul says in verse 3, for the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, 
but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as you, for you, Timothy, use self-restraint in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. You know, what's often missed here in Paul's charge to Timothy is his words to endure hardship. Now, wait a minute here. I, I thought I heard that pastors only work on Sundays. Well, some might, but not the ones who are honoring the Lord. My dad always used to say this, anything worth doing well or doing right is going to require hard work. And it's going to have its difficulties. Paul says to Timothy, if you want to be an effective pastor, you must be vulnerable with people. And so when Paul says to endure hardship, he's not talking about preaching. That's the easy part of being a pastor. He's talking about dealing with people, loving them, serving them, instructing them, leading them unto godliness. But the reality is that not everyone wants to honor God with their lives, and that's the point. And so Paul says to Timothy, you must do the hard things. You must endure hardship. Pastoral ministry is hard. It's grueling. There's there's endurance that is necessary. And notice in verse 5, he says, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. And so being a pastor, being a faithful Christian requires work. And so I'm setting the stage for what we want to consider later, but you realize that the the Christian life is sometimes difficult. Sometimes it's hard, and we must endure hardship. But if hope has a name, and his name is Jesus, it's worth it. It's all worth it. So we notice here that the goal of preaching is to challenge all those who listen to look at their own life and their own sin and their own commitment to the things of Christ. But if the resurrection is not true, then all of our work in preaching is in vain. The second reality we find here in verse 14, he says, if there is no resurrection, then our faith is in vain. You see that? Our faith is in vain. It makes sense, right? Because what does Romans 10, 17 say? It says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So if our preaching is in vain, then our faith is in vain as well. And so a person's faith is only as good as the object of their faith. Because the object of our faith is Jesus, it is the truth of his resurrection that validates who he is. Most of us don't like to be wrong. We like to be right. Have you ever thought that you were right about something and you may even maybe have gotten passionate with others about it and then you realize that you were wrong? This happens. This happens in a marriage. A husband and a wife will talk about something and they dig their heels in and the husband says, no, I'm right. And the wife says, no, you're wrong. I'm right. And they go back and they go back and forth with each other. And then at some point down the road, one of them is wrong. And so 
that person then has a responsibility to go back to their spouse and to say, honey, in my case, honey, I'm sorry again. I was wrong. And you were right. Paul says that if the resurrection is not true, we are wrong. And our faith is in vain. And we have lived a certain way for no reason. So, if the resurrection isn't true, our preaching's in vain, our faith is in vain. And then third, if the resurrection isn't true, we are false witnesses of God. Look at verse 15. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. So in other words, we've represented God in a false manner. If Jesus was not bodily raised from the dead, we have misrepresented God. Some have said that if the resurrection is not true, then that is proof positive that there really is no God. I thought I was on the blacklist with the Jehovah Witnesses. And I was for a long time. I mean, I would watch them in my neighborhood and they would walk right past my house. And I would be like, no, pick me, pick me. But they would walk right past and go to my neighbor's. And so I thought, I told Kathy, I said, I I think the last encounter that I had with the Jehovah Witnesses put me on the blacklist. How do I get on the other list? Well, it wasn't too long ago that maybe there was a rookie, and the rookie didn't realize that I was on the blacklist and came up to my house and knocked on my door and wanted to give me some of their literature, and I said, We need to talk. We need to talk. And so we spoke for quite some time. And during our conversation, I told him that he is a false witness. You are a false witness. Why? Because you misrepresent who God is. God is three in one. Father, Son, and Spirit. He is a trinity. You don't believe that Jesus is God. You don't believe that the Holy Spirit is a person and is God. You believe that the Holy Spirit is some sort of a force. You are a false witness. You misrepresent God. And he started crying. This is the second one that I had that cried on me. And he started crying and he goes, I just don't know what I believe. This is what they tell me is true. I said, it's not true. It is not true. I can show you in the Bible that what they have told you is a lie. It is false. And so I did. So if the resurrection is not true, we're just like them. We have misrepresented God. This brings us to verse 17 and the fourth reality that if there is no resurrection, then our faith is absolutely worthless. Look at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if the Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Your faith is worthless. None of us want to hear that. If Jesus was not resurrected from the dead, 
Not only is our faith in vain, but our faith is absolutely worthless. In other words, there's no value in our faith. I've got an old collection of baseball cards from back in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up. And I've kept these cards my whole life because I've been told that there's value in them. And so I placed my faith in those magazines and those people who told me that they'll increasingly grow in value. Just hold on to them. But what if they were wrong? If they're wrong, there's no value in my cards. They're just worthless pieces of paper. But who really cares about baseball cards? All of my baseball cards are out in some plastic tub in our garage. But our faith... We care immensely about that because it is our faith in Christ that motivates us to do what we do. Paul says that if Jesus was not resurrected, then our faith is not only in vain, it is useless. It's worth nothing. And then the fifth reality we find here in the text that Paul shares, it's if if there is no resurrection, we are still in our sins. And we see this here in verse 17. Again, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And then he says, you are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no resurrection. We're still in our sins. We then will receive the due penalty of our sin. Paul says if Jesus was not resurrected from the dead, then he was not able to overcome death, and therefore he can't offer eternal life to anyone. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then his death meant nothing. A good man has died. If Jesus' death was not propitiatory, which can only be validated by his resurrection, then Paul says we are still dead in our sins. Why does he make this point, by the way? Why does he make this point? Because it is our sin that separates us from holy God, right? The gospel begins with God. He is holy, and we are not. God is holy, and we are not. We are sinners deserving of eternal separation from God, eternal damnation in a real place called hell. The wages of sin is death, There is none of us who are righteous, not even one. We have all sinned against a holy God. This is is why we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because we can't present our righteousness to God. We say, God, we want to come in on our own merit. We want to to enter into the glories of heaven on our own merit. He, He says, no, you're sinners. You're a sinner. You need to be punished for your sin. But God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We couldn't do anything on our own to earn any merit before God, but God loved sinners enough to send Jesus to this crazy world, this sin-tainted world where Jesus would come down and condescend and come down and live among sinners. 
His mom was a sinner. His dad was a sinner. His brothers and sisters were sinners. All the people that he worked for as a carpenter, all sinners. Everyone was a sinner except him. He lives a perfect life on this earth to qualify to be the sinless sacrifice that God would accept. The Lamb of God who was perfect in all of his ways. And only through his propitiatory death can we have eternal life. You see, it's not our righteousness that God will accept. It's only the righteousness of Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, it's not our righteousness. Every other religion in the world bases their so-called eternal state on people's performance, except true biblical Christianity. I said to the Jehovah Witness when he was at my home, I said, you're trying to earn your way to heaven, aren't you? And he said, well, yeah, I mean, how else am I going to get there? Let me share. Let me talk with you about this. Every other religion in the world is performance-based. In other words, presenting their own righteousness to God. But God's Word says, no, I won't accept your righteousness. But I will accept the righteousness of my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we place our faith and trust in Jesus and in what He did on the cross of Calvary, He takes our sin, He gives us His righteousness, and God accepts us because of Jesus. You see, God had this whole thing planned out. Isn't it amazing? When you look at the story of redemption, and essentially the Bible is God's unfolding story of redemption for sinners. Essentially, as we start from Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and we go all the way to the end of Revelation, we find all through the pages of Scripture, He's pointing to something. He's pointing to the redemption of sinners like us. It's the unfolding story of how we can have a right relationship with God. Through our own performance? No. But through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead who paid the penalty on the cross of Calvary so that we might then have this great exchange, our sin for His righteousness. This is great news. This is great news. It's almost depressing to read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19. It shouldn't put a doubt in your mind. He's not talking about reality here. He's just saying, if this isn't true, then all these other things are true. But it is true. It's 100% true. So the sixth and final reality, and it makes all the sense in the world, if there is no resurrection, then we have no hope. We have no hope. Hope has a name. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If the resurrection's not true, we have no hope. We have no hope. But the resurrection is true. Many of us have probably sung hundreds of times the words, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? Love that song. Sung it hundreds of times. 
If the resurrection is not true, our faith and everything about it is useless. We're wasting our time. We had a good breakfast this morning, but the rest of it was a waste. There is no hope. If Jesus has not risen from the grave, there's no hope. Honestly, I think we'd all probably say this. If Christ hadn't transformed my life through the power of the Spirit of God, I would, I would, I'd be a totally different guy. We'd all be totally different people. We'd be living for the moment. We would be the poster children for eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. We would be indulging ourselves in everything that pleases our flesh. We would be the ultimate hedonists. But folks, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And that makes all of the difference in the world to me and to you. Our faith in Christ was authenticated by his resurrection. If you truly believe verses 3 and 4, if you want to go back to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, if you truly believe verses 3 and 4 that Jesus died for your sins and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, that should affect how you live your life every single day. And that's Paul's conclusion in verse 58. He says in verse 58 at the end of the chapter, Therefore, my beloved brethren, because our creed is true, and we, we talked about this last week, verses 3 and 4, probably the, the best place we can go to Scripture to see what our creed is as believers. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and then He was buried, and then He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. But that creed and belief in that creed should change our life. Again, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Notice back up in verse 10, it says, He labored more than all of them. Paul expressed his undying appreciation and gratitude for what Christ had done for him by how he labored, how he lived his life. And we should do the same. If we really believe in the resurrection, hear me, if we really believe in the resurrection, it will affect how we live. Not just on Easter Sunday, but every day. So, how are we to live? How are we to labor? Well, let me, as we close this morning, let me just use the words of the Apostle Paul to help us. First, we're to love others. We're to love others. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. We serve the Lord, we labor for the Lord when we love and serve others. And let me say, if we love someone if we truly sacrificially love someone, we will tell them the truth. We'll tell them the truth. We just read in verses 3 and 4, our creed. We'll tell them our creed. 
This is who we are about. This is what we are about. We're about that Jesus Christ died, and he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And we believe this, and this truth has changed our life, and we want you to have the same hope that we have. If we have been changed by the power of the Spirit of God and we love others, we will find a way to tell others the truth and love them as Christ had loved us. Second, we attest to God's grace. Acts 20, 24 says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I might finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. You see, the Christian life is all about grace. It's all about grace. It's all about God extending His grace to us. Paul was like an expert on this. He was an absolute expert, experientially and intellectually, theologically. He was an expert. I was watching this series last night on the History Channel, and uh, it's, it's called The Bible. It was okay. I mean, there was a lot of inaccuracies in the accounts, but I thought, well, I'd rather watch this than watch something else. So I turned it on. And I was watching, and they had uh, the Apostle Paul on there, and he was giving sort of his, his testimony. It was all backwards and everything, and, and it's, if you know the Bible and you watch it, you can filter through all these kinds of things. But he was talking about what had happened to him on the road to Damascus. And it was okay, it was fairly accurate, but so much more profound than what they were trying to portray in this, in this movie. Paul was a bad guy. He was a religious guy. He was, he was a, a, perhaps even a member of the Sanhedrin, but he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And when they say in the Bible that you're a Pharisee of Pharisees, that means you rise to the top of the food chain as it relates to being a Pharisee. So he was like an exemplary Pharisee. He was all about trying to keep the law but he was so busy trying to keep the law that he had no use for Christians whatsoever. So he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he persecuted those who did think that Jesus was the Messiah. He was a bad guy. Religious, but a bad guy. And so he's telling the story about how he was on his way to Damascus in Syria, and he's going to persecute Christians, and then God gets a hold of his life. And you know the story. We talked about it a little bit last week. You know the story. But then what I did appreciate was he began, even in the movie, he began to share about grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's God giving us something that we do not deserve. So none of us deserve the grace of God. But without it, we have no hope. Without God's grace, we will die in our sins so God designed this plan of redemption. He knew when he created man that they were going to come to the earth and sin. It didn't take him by surprise. God knows everything, but he had a plan. When this happens, when Adam and Eve disobey, when Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, when they do that, 
God then enacted His plan. And that plan has been passed down to all of Adam's posterity that the only hope we have is Jesus Christ. This is amazing stuff, guys. It is amazing stuff. And it's all of His grace. So we should be attesting to the grace of God in our lives. Third, we build into the lives of other Christians. In other words, we're a part of people's lives. We, we're active in discipleship. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Colossians 1.28 and 29 says, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. That's all that resurrection power. We possess the Spirit of God as the children of God when we repent of our sin and we trust in Christ and in His righteousness and not our own. Then we receive the Spirit of God. He permanently indwells our life. He gives us the power to live the Christian life. He transforms our life. And our job is not only to attest to God's grace by loving others, but we are to build into the lives of other Christians. You know, we, we need each other. We need each other. We need that encouragement that he spoke of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11. And then fourth, we order our lives for his glory. We order our lives for His glory. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Our life should be one giant thank you to God. One giant thank you. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're to do it all to the glory of God. And then fifth, we reject what is false. We reject what is false. Ephesians 5.11 says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Sounds like a lot of work. We've got a lot to do. What's our purpose? Jesus fulfilled His purpose. Jesus fulfilled His mission. What's ours? What is our mission? To have a good job? To earn a good living? To have a nice house? To have a nice car? To put our kids in travel sports? Is this our purpose in life? Live a good life? Provide for our family? Is this our purpose? None of those things are inherently wrong. We don't need to have a guilt trip because God has blessed us with, with, with things. No. But how are we using these things? How are we ordering our life for His glory? We're to reject that which is false. <laughs> you know, then we're negative, right? Oh, that's the negative church. That's the negative Christians we're to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. All of this 
is so vital and important because of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, That's what matters. What He did. And that should then provoke us to live our lives as one giant thank you for what He's done for us. We have eternal life because Jesus rose from the grave. We are the recipients of eternal life that Jesus can now give because He defeated death. And now, because of this creed, this glorious Gospel that Paul lays out in verses 3 and 4, by believing in Him, in Christ, the risen Savior, we can have this abundant life. Let me just tell you, I, I love being a Christian. I, I know that sounds funny. Well, sure, Pastor Dave, you're a pastor. I mean, you better say that. Well, of course. But I wouldn't be a pastor. I could do a lot of things if I wanted to, probably. I don't know. I always wanted to be a garbage man. I've, I love those guys that hold on to the pole on the outside of the garbage truck. Maybe I'll do that in my retirement. I love being a Christian. I love it. I love to tell other people about Jesus. I am, I'm ex- I am more excited today about my faith than I've ever been. And I think that's what we should be about is progressively growing in this excitement. When we say happy resurrection day, we mean it. It's okay to be happy. It's okay. This is great. We celebrate Jesus today. So talk about Him. Talk about Him today. Talk to your kids. Talk to your grandkids. Hey, what do you understand about Easter? Tell me what it means. Help them to know the risen Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You for our service today. I pray that it was honoring to You. I pray that, that all of us would, would, would consider, as we've considered all these things that would be true if the resurrection wasn't true, but it is, And so now, how does it affect our lives? How do we live our lives because you live and you provided redemption through Christ? Lord, I pray that you would give us an excitement, maybe a renewed excitement. Maybe we've been so entrenched in all these little things in life that just have been mounting in our life and Oh, it just seems like we we can't dig out of the hole. But I pray you would give us perspective. Jesus, your son, is alive. He's seated at your right hand. He's preparing a place for all those who will trust in him. This is a glorious, glorious truth. I pray that our lives would reflect it. Help to continue to transform us into the image of Jesus. We thank You for what You've done for us. We thank You for providing Your Son. For loving us when we didn't love You. And for Him going to the cross. And doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Lord, may we be an excited church. And may that excitement be seen in how we gather, in how we live, in how we talk, how we interact all because of what You've done through Jesus. We thank You and we praise You 
for your glorious Son who you sent to this earth to die in our place. Oh, what a wonderful Savior we have. Thank you. It's in His name we pray this morning. Amen.